2019 homophobia is a thing of the past but we know that for some people it really isn't NHS digital data from 2017 showed that around 10% of 14 to 19 year olds in England reported a sexual orientation other than heterosexual. Evidence also suggests that LGBT plus young people have disproportionately high rates of mental health problems. One UK based survey of over 3,700 young people found that 61% of the LGB cohort reported self-harm and 22% a previous suicide attempt. An education article published in the BMJ explores some of these risks facing young LGBT plus people, including problems at home, school, as well as mental health issues. The authors propose ways in which doctors can help safeguard their young LGBT plus patients against these risks. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined by three authors of this article. Ginger Drage, uh, an expert patient educator at University College London. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jess Salkind, an academic clinical fellow in paediatrics at Imperial College London. Hi, Jess. Hi, Kate. Thank you. And Dr. Rosanna Bevan, a psychiatry trainee from East London Foundation Trust in London. Hi. Hello. So um, I've already obviously set out a little bit around why an article like this is important. Um, Maybe would you like to start by telling us a little bit about why you felt you wanted to write this article at this time? So Kate, as you highlighted at the beginning, um, I think sometimes if people read a title like Safeguarding LGBT Adolescents, this can sound like kind of a niche topic. But actually, this is quite a significant minority um, somewhere around the 10% of the population um, falling somewhere on the LGBT um, spectrum. So every clinician who's looking after young people will be looking after LGBT young people. They just may not be realising that they're doing so. Um, and whilst we don't want to overlook all the progress that has happened in recent years, lots of changes to the law, changes in attitudes, we know that the LGBT population continue to face considerable health and social inequalities. And when you're looking at the adolescent group, some of these inequalities may represent significant safeguarding risks that becomes a child protection issue. Um, and frontline NHS staff um, are really well placed to address these risks, but they need knowledge of what the issues are and advice on what good practice would look like. Um, and that's what this article hopes to do, open this conversation. And I think in terms of thinking about why we wanted to write it, so Jess and I were working together um, with a few others um, around making the paediatric curriculum more inclusive of LGBT young people. And whilst we were talking about our clinical experiences, Jess and I realized that we had we had some common clinical experiences of coming across these kinds of safeguarding issues in our clinical practice with young people. And we realized this, this isn't an issue that, that people really talk about, the specific safeguarding risks that apply to this population. And we thought it was it was well worth having a bit more of a discussion and making more information about this available. Yeah, and like coming at this from a patient point of view, if you think back to your own adolescence, and it's a very confusing time, you're kind of dealing with aspects of your own identity, with school, with like your future, and also then dealing with other aspects, including like sexuality or gender identity, it's like an extra load of pressure on top of an already very pressurized time. And this can exacerbate a lot of risks. It can um, cause new ones to come up. And it's really important, I think, um, for 
doctors and anyone de dealing with young people, but particularly dealing with them in a medical capacity, to know how to look out for these safeguarding issues and how to best like protect them and protect people at a very vulnerable time in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you mentioned in the article actually um, about how a positive response from from family doctors can, you know, is evidence to have a positive impact on both physical and mental health outcomes for those young people. Yeah, absolutely. The the Canadian study of over 900 trans young people showed really quite a significant correlation between how much trust the young people had in their in their primary healthcare provider and their general well-being and and actually even their mortality. And you you can't say that it's it's necessarily a, a causative thing, but but there's a clear correlation there. So there's there's reasonable evidence to tell us that the better we do in providing the most appropriate healthcare for this specific population in, in all circumstances, whether that's primary care, secondary care, mental health care, the more likely they are to be able to engage with healthcare in the future. And adolescence is a really key time. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because... Uh... I suppose we use, Jess already mentioned some of the particular issues that arise around when you're thinking about kind of safeguarding issues with, with adolescents. I suppose, why, why is this group so important? So in terms of why we think that you need a specific focus on the adolescent group, um, there's kind of two main reasons, um, really. So we know that there's um, inequalities that affect LGBT people of all ages, and as healthcare professionals, there's lots of things we need to do to tackle that. Um, but anybody under the age of 18 is legally a child, and so it becomes a child protection issue. And the balance must always fall on safeguarding the young person. So when we discover one of these issues, then we need to consider whether external agents, so for example, social care, need to be involved. Um, adolescence is an interesting time as well because it's a really kind of key developmental period, and probably the second kind of critical developmental period after infancy. Um, we did some interesting work with um, so the RTPCH, the Royal College of Pediatricians and Child Health. Um, they have a rainbow badge group of LGBT young people um, who talked to us about why we need to really focus on this adolescent group. And they talked about being new to their feelings as adolescence is a period of discovery um, in terms of your sexual orientation, in terms of your gender identity for some people. Um, and this dependence on their families um, who might have negative views and that discovery of independence um, and why that kind of makes this time so important. Yeah, I think that is issue that Jess raises about the kind of that um, tension within adolescence between burgeoning independence and like sense of self and wanting to go out and experience new things and express themselves as a separate identity from their parents, combined with the fact that legally they are still children in this country and therefore don't have that level of independence and are still under parental controls generally rely on parents for housing and for other issues like that. And the same I suppose is true around their healthcare. So whilst they might feel that they want to explore these issues around their identity or, or and issues that relate to their health maybe with their GP, they that might also be difficult with parents who might want to accompany them or and, and kind of thinking about what the limits are to confidentiality with I mean, that's probably a, a difficult area for doctors to to address as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's that's part of why we'd always recommend when seeing an adolescent patient, give them some space to talk 
without their parents present because you don't know what issues they may or may not be able to discuss in front of their parents or guardians. I touched on a little bit at the start there, kind of some of the mental health um, problems that adolescents, um, LGBT adolescents can can face. Um, can you tell me us a little bit more about some of those health inequalities that exist in this group? Do you mean specifically in terms of mental health or wider than that? Wider than that, yeah. Kind of both, both mental health um, and, and possibly as well kind of expand on some of those other safeguarding risks which might not necessarily be directly related to health but might come up in the course of sort of a, a general doctor's a gp's kind of work yeah in terms of in terms of mental health as a start we know that um young people who identify as lgbt have higher rates of depression higher um higher rates of attempting suicide and there's there's good statistical evidence for higher rates of self-harm in young people who are attracted to the same gender as them or to um, multiple genders. Um, and beyond that, um, there's also other risks to their health, particularly, although when we talk about um, diverse sexuality is one of the first things that people often jump to is sexual health and particularly historically, thinking about risk of HIV and AIDS, which we would discourage anyone from jumping straight to that. That is part of someone's health, but it's it's only part. Um, but we do have to bear in mind that the sex and relationships education in this country is frequently not inclusive of young people who are not heterosexual or not cisgender. And that can mean that their sexual health can suffer. They might be at higher risk of um, having less healthy relationships um, and becoming at risk in those ways, um, but also in terms of risk of infections and those kind of sexual health problems. And just in terms of their general health care, um, we know that if, if you extrapolate from people who have significant mental illness, um, such as long-term depression, um, we know that their physical health is worse. If we know that LGBT people are at higher risk of those mental health conditions, it's reasonable to extrapolate that their physical health would also be worse in terms of the other, the other data that's known on those. Um, I'd just like to touch, because obviously we've talked about the fact there is high quality data that show higher rates of mental health conditions in the LGBT group. But there's nothing at all to suggest that being LGBT causes mental health problems. Um, it's linked to complex underlying social factors, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, um, and specifically not having anyone to talk to, not having a trusted adult um, or a strong peer group. And this links directly to some of the, the social factors, some of which will represent safeguarding risks that they would like to expand on. Yeah, there's something that um, I think a lot about it uh, separately from healthcare and ad adolescent healthcare, but uh, de definitely ties into it in this kind of discussion is that for many kind of different marginalized groups in society, um, it's inherited. And so like their parents are marginalized and they share the same marginalization as their children. Whereas often for LGBT young people, they won't have gay parents, they won't have trans parents, they will be the only one and therefore they're facing and trying to navigate a society which is set up against them 
but they have no, at least in the home and in their family, uh, guide there who knows what it's like. And this obviously adds uh, greater risks and greater kind of um, experimentation and difficulty finding uh, finding out what to do and what not to do. Yeah. And I think you, you start to touch on those sort of more social um, risks that can exist. So in the article, you mentioned that 24% of homeless young people in the UK um, identify as LGBT uh, and 69% of whom reported family rejection, abuse and violence. It's really stark and shocking, actually. Yeah, I think people are, people are often surprised to hear that because they think it's, it's 2019, homophobia is a thing of the past, but we know that for some people it really isn't. And similarly, some might think that conversion therapy is a thing of the past, but again, you mentioned that in the article. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely something a lot that's coming up. Um, conversion therapy is, um, as we've discussed, an attempt to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. And it can be kind of a pseudo-psychological intervention or something along the lines of a religious ceremony or exorcism. And all forms of conversion therapy have been widely condemned um, for their potential to cause damage to the mental and physical health um, of a young person. And we know from the government's um, national LGBT survey that 8% of 16 and 17 year olds um, had undergone or been offered conversion therapy. But when Stonewall surveyed NHS staff, they surveyed over 3,000 staff um, in 2015. And of the patient facing staff, 10% said they'd witnessed somebody at work expressing the belief that a person could be cured of being um, LGB. So those members of staff who think that you can cure somebody are very unlikely to recognise conversion therapy as a serious safeguarding risk, which requires escalation. Whilst there is a lot more kind of press coverage about um, so-called gay conversion therapy, there is, particularly in the UK right now, there is a bigger push for um, conversion therapy for gender non-conforming adolescents and young people. Um, and this is something that's kind of new that we at least hasn't been getting the attention that it has before, but is definitely being driven by certain um, interests. Mm. And just thinking about that from a sort of practical um, perspective, how might a doctor who's seeing a young person, whether they suspect or there might be a possibility that conversion therapy might be something that has happened or has been suggested in the person in the young person's life how, how might they bring that up how might they raise that in a kind of sensitive manner i think that will always depend on the situation but in my practice if i was seeing a young person who identified as lgbt and i was aware of that then that could lead into the conversation of how are your family responding to this information, are you feeling safe? Is there anything happening at home or in your environment to upset you? Is there anything that you're feeling uncomfortable with? All of those kind of questions. If it's a young person where I don't know their identity, then that may well come up in terms, in part of, uh, we refer in the article to using the HEADS framework, uh, which is a really good tool to use to just get a thorough social history and kind of sense of what's going on for a young person. Um, I'd always advocate going through the HEADS framework with the young person on their own um, because it, it includes asking things about sex, drugs, alcohol, um, gangs, things that 
are less likely to be sort of openly responded to with remind, parents in the room. Sorry, can you remind us what their heads? Um... Uh, so there's there's a few there's a few different versions of the acronym um, depending on uh, which which source you use. Um, so it's heads. The one that we refer to is heads with two E's and three S's, um, which stands for. Uh, let me find the bit in the article that has it, or just try and remember it off the top of my I'm head. Here if you want um, to. Home, education, eating, activities, drugs, safety, suicide, sexuality, sexuality, there you go. and that's what <laughs> we're, we're here to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's a really useful framework to to cover most, if not all, of the the relevant things in a young person's life, and really include a lot of potential safeguarding issues. And so, asking them or sort of detecting any risks of conversion therapy or other things that are happening that would make them unsafe that that could come up in in home. In terms of asking, how are you getting on with your family? Do you feel safe at home? How is your relationship with your family? Um, it can also come up in the in the safety context. Are you feeling safe? What what makes you feel unsafe? Um, it could be something that you talk about in terms of education. Are there issues around school and bullying? Um, other young people that they're mixing with. Yeah, there's there's a lot of scope for a lot of things to come out. And although clinicians often feel somewhat reluctant to ask such personal questions of young people um, or sometimes don't know quite how to word things. Um, there's some really good resources online um, and then other articles that we've referenced about this. But personally, in my clinical experience, I've found that young people are actually quite, they quite welcome people taking an interest in what's going on for them. And they're quite open to talk about what's happening um, and if there is risks going on, they appreciate that there's scope to talk about that and the knowledge that, that there is a safe person to talk to. In terms of um, kind of steps that um, a healthcare professional can take, the way I think about it is if you have a young LGBT person who's potentially at risk, there's kind of two steps that need to happen. First, that young person needs to feel safe enough to open up and trust the healthcare professionals. And there's lots of things that we say in the article um, around creating a safe environment and communication skills around that but then the second step is that the healthcare professional needs to recognize that something has been disclosed which is a risk so I think conversion therapy is quite a good example of that I think that's really important that you touch on the kind of the practical steps that um, doctors need to think about if they are faced um, with a potential risk um, so social care is one um, important avenue um, what other, I suppose, MDT support is available? What else can um, be offered to the young person? Maybe even their family, if family are not kind of directly involved in that risk to try and help with the situation. Um, I think whenever we think about safeguarding for young people, we need to, as you say, take a multidisciplinary approach. Children's social care are a really important aspect. Um, but we also need to think about the education environment that the young person's in, because that's where they're spending a large amount of their time. And school nurses and other links within schools, such as the SENCO or the wellbeing officer, it's called different things in different schools. Um, they're an important person to link in with as well. Um, and it's, it's useful 
for everyone to be on the same page and the young person may have shared different things with different people that they're seeing so school may be aware of of different risks and those are all things that need to form part of of a risk assessment that the um that children's social care would be doing for a young person in terms of other support that's available um that's something that's really really widely variable geographically um, and from country to country. Um, so it's it's worth being aware of what's available locally. Um, we've we've included quite a number of links in the article. Um, and the one that I'd I'd flag up, um, particularly in terms of people who want to know where to signpost young people locally, um, is a website called LGBT Consortium, which has the it has a, a collection of the locally available resources. Um, it's also worth asking around in terms of people that you work with. Um, social care may be aware of what's available locally. They, they're very often the people that will refer a young person or a family to, to further support. Um, in terms of clinically, for, for young people um, who have issues around their gender identity, then there's the Gender Identity Development Service in the UK, which is the, the service that provides healthcare um, in relation to gender for all the young people under 18 in the UK. Um, and there's more information about them on their website. Um, and in terms of other organisations to refer to, it kind of depends on what the issue is. If it's around housing, then there's the Albert Kennedy Trust, um, which helps homeless LGBT young people. And there are other similar organisations um, for other issues. Um, and it, it depends what the young person's looking for so whether it's mental health support, Mind Out, uh, a really good resource there. Um, yeah, it's, it's worth having a look at, at what's available. And you mentioned the importance of language um, and using language that is in inclusive. And you give examples of kind of perhaps how to do that within the article. How important is that from your experience? Um, I would say it's very important. Uh, languages can work in very subtle ways at times and is sort of a, a constant, it can act as a constant reminder of your own um, alienation and for, uh, for example. So to take myself, I'm non-binary, but I, even amongst kind of people who are generally supportive, I always get either male or female pronouns used to me when I don't use either of them. And it's just those subtle reminders that um, you don't fit in and you're not being fully respected here. So kind of when you're already in a more vulnerable situation, say you're discussing medical problems or, or just something like that with a doctor, uh, feeling like you're not being fully recognized, fully supported and fully um, and that your humanity isn't being fully respected can be can cause you to just close off and go, oh, you're clearly not going to actually give me the help that I need right here. Yeah, if if you think that someone's making assumptions about you, um, if, if they're implying that by the language they use, um, things like saying, do you have a boyfriend to a girl? Because that, and then that implies that's the only option that she might have. That's not gonna make someone feel like it's, a safe and accepting environment in which to discuss her relationship if it's not with a boyfriend. So it's, yeah, like Ginger says, it's it's subtle, but it's so important. 
yeah the kind of what words we choose what words what phrases we use how we phrase things sub um i'd say subconsciously uh communicates a lot about our more underlying attitudes so if people are phrasing things in ways which don't which aren't read by the patient as being uh respectful and as being listening then they're going to pick up on that and particularly if you are a young person a teenager if you are already dealing with confusion and pressure or not confusions let's say you know about your sexuality but um if you're really dealing with like social pressures around your sexuality then picking up on those mess on those messages from the doctor will make you not want to engage mm. in terms of confusion um i think it's relevant to talk about confusion not necessarily within the young person themselves they may have a, a clear sense of their identity and actually if they don't that's also fine like in in the youth work that i do with with uh trans and gender variant young people it's it's not unusual for people's identity to change but we need to be accepting of that just because it changes doesn't mean it's not legitimate that's not their feelings um but going back to back to the concept of confusion it doesn't have to be within themselves it can also be confusion around how do i deal with this how do i um how do i express this to people in a safe way how do i how do i negotiate the world where i may not be accepted all of all of those kind of confusions come up as well yeah and as an example for confusion i only really fully worked out my identity when i was 27 so you know expecting a 17 year old to be fully on it can be a bit of a this isn't hard this isn't a specialist topic this isn't about learning a whole new vocabulary or feeling that you need to tread on eggshells um it's just about being an empathetic person open-minded um, really listening to what the person in front of you is saying um, and fundamentally, if you respect everybody's right to define their own identity and use the terms that they want to describe themselves, you mirror the language that they use. You can't really go wrong um, sticking to that. Um, and I think people can get really kind of bogged down feeling that it's it's very difficult, but it isn't difficult. And if someone uses a term to describe themselves that you don't know what it means, ask them. They're, they may well be used to having to explain their identity to people. Um, and if they're happy to share that and give you a better understanding of who they are, then that's great. Yeah, and I think a really important thing is trusting the patient and not, let trusting that even if even if they are an adolescent, if they say that they are, for example, bisexual, trust that that is the case. Don't start questioning, second guessing them. Um, and but and also I think it's really important. Whilst this article is about in regards to specifically safeguarding the specific safeguarding risks that LGBT young people have. So often, um, and I say this particularly for trans young people, but for all LGBT people, we get treated as such a special case when so often we're not going to the doctors because we want to refer to, um, to a gender service or something. We're going to the doctors because we have an ear infection, because we have something else like that. And it's like remembering to actually treat um, treat the condition that's in front of you. Yeah. In terms of respecting young people, it seems like this is an area in which we, in which society so much questions young people, but yet we, we trust them to make big decisions. In this country, if you're 16, you can join the army. 
you know, young people are, are trusted to make really big decisions in relation to their education, to their future career, to deciding to study medicine when they're 17. Why can they, why do we not believe them when they decide who to have relationships with or how to define their identity? Brilliant. Thank you so much. I think that's a really good note to end on. Thank you very much to our guests who are the authors of a practice pointer article called Safeguarding LGBT plus Adolescents, which you can find on bmj.com. Thanks very much for listening. You can find all our back catalogue of podcasts on SoundCloud or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Thanks very much for listening.